You've got questions and we've got answers. It's the All Questions Show and you're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer and right here next to me is David Hansen. David, we've got questions. We've got this email address, this crazy thing where people can send us electronic letters mm-hmm. over Heard the interwebs. WTMI at fool.com. That's, the, that's this electronic mailing address that people can send us stuff. And the reason we're doing this show? The reason we're doing this show... Snowpocalypse. Yeah, there's the possibility that we won't be here tomorrow. We're, well, we're filming this. It's Wednesday. Yeah. We're filming it for Thursday. Full disclosure. Yeah. So we're probably trapped in our houses. Yeah. Horrible. It'd be horrible. <laughs> I can just eat, eat all day. Have you ever day, seen watch The Day TV? After Tomorrow? That's basically what's going to happen. Here I haven't. Really. I haven't seen it. All right. Let's, okay. let's, let's get to it. Let's get to it. I don't want to hear movie reviews. First question that we have comes from TJ in North Carolina. TJ writes... I enjoy your podcast and listen to it every day. I would like to know exactly how to calculate the true value of a stock, dividend paying and non-dividend paying. What are the necessary formulas slash calculations? Would you be able to give me an example? Are there issues that cannot be calculated, such as management forces? Whoa. I'm going to let you run with that one and jump in as, Whoa. as I see fit. You're the valuation guru. Okay, this is, this is a big question, and, and I don't mean to disappoint TJ, but I'm not going to be able to cover <laughs> this all in the, I don't know, two minutes that we'll spend talking about it. But essentially for a dividend or non-dividend company, what you want to do to, to ca- the, the basic idea of calculating the valuation is to look at the stream of future cash flows, disc- discount them back to the present day, and add them all up. And there you go. You've got, you've got the value. And th- then you do stuff like to get to the equity value, you'd subtract out debt, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So what are the steps to doing that? Well, first of all, you've got to project future cash flows. So you want to create some sort of financial model, financial mm-hmm. statement for the company, and figure out what you think is going to happen from year to year, how the cash flows of the company are going to grow over time. And then you're going to want to discount them back to the present because basically the idea is that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. Right. It's worth more than a dollar 10 years from now. So you want to get that all basically right-sized for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to use that. You're, you're going to do that. There are calculations online that you could look up easily for discounting back. The biggest cal- thing in there that you're going to have to deal with is the discount rate, which is basically how much do you discount it back. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different ways to think about. Again, don't necessarily want to go through all of that here because it's going to get a little bit too wonky. But what, again, give, it, give him a ballpark discount rate. What's a reason? Is it 1%? Is it 20%? 10%? Well, if you're, if you're just discounting equity, if you're just discounting equity value, um, 8% is what a lot of people say has been the historical cost of equity capital. Mm-hmm. So you could discount returns to equity back at an 8% rate. When you start to add in uh, the, the, the value of the, the impact from debt, yep. from debt values and that sort of thing, it can go down or up, um, usually down because debt usually costs less than equity. You can also think of it as sort of a hurdle rate as well. So what are the returns I'm looking for on the equity that I'm investing in? And so you could say, well, if I want 12% annual returns, I'll set my uh, equity discount rate at 12%. You can do it that way, and, and that'll, get you, that'll get you there. So the basic idea is finding future cash flows, discounting them back to today, adding, them, adding it all up. Mm-hmm. And if there is debt in the company, then subtracting out the debt to get to the equity value. And then you can use the share count to figure out how much it's worth on a per share basis. 
There are other ways to go about this that kind of triangulate right. to what the discounted cash flow method gets to. So one of them for a dividend-paying stock would be a discounted dividend model, which kind of sort of does the same thing, except it looks at dividends, discounts the dividend stream back to today, and adds that all up. It yep. says, well, how much is it worth from that perspective? You can also go with a classic valuation multiple idea. The trouble with this or the trick with this is that you don't want to just pull some multiple out of the sky and, uh, and, and throw it on a company and, and say, well, that's how much the company is worth. When you're putting a, either a price-to-earnings multiple or for a lot of financial companies we look at, a, a price-to-book value multiple, you want to really think about what does this multiple mean that I'm putting on the stock? What does this imply about the quality of the business, about the potential for growth, about the quality of management, and a lot of other things? So TJ also asked in here, how can you deal with intangibles? Intangibles, in theory, all come through, and let's go back to the discounted cash flow idea. They all come back to that. Mm-hmm. So if you have a lousy management team, if you have no competitive advantage, uh, then that's going to play out in the cash flows. In the cash flows. Right. If you have great management, if you have a great business, that's going to play out in the cash flows. You can expect more, more durable competitive advantage, a, a higher return on equity over a longer period of time. That's going to show up in what you're able to project in the cash flow. Well, and the difficulty of that is in terms of projecting kind of the competitive moat. You may think that a company has very, very good moat. It's going to be fine. It's going to generate great cash flow, grow at 10% a year. And then there's a disruption in, in the market. Sure. Something yep. else new comes in that completely throws you off. So he asks for, I guess, the exactly the way or the exact value. I'm not remember. That's why it's so hard to get an exact value because there's always forces that we don't know. Our expectations change over time. The cost of capital can change over time. Um, but those are you ran with it. That's good. Those <laughs> well, are very good ways to think about it. To, to your, to your point, one other, one other thing that I'll point out here is this is the future. It is unknowable. We don't want to think in terms of exactitudes here because we're not going to hit precision with this. So we want to think about scenarios and we want to think about probabilities. So it's not just this is the value. It's, well, I think X, Y, and Z will happen with this probability. And then some other uh, group of uh, things will happen with this probability. And then you can look at the valuations that you come to, given those scenarios, given those probabilities, and you can get a range of values that a stock or company is potentially worth. And a great way for feedback is if he does a model, if he has something written down, to just show it to someone else, see what their feedback is. He said he's been a member of The Fool since 2000, I think. Mm -hmm. You can go onto the message boards in our member services and say, hey, I made this model. What do you guys think of it? And we have thousands of members that can give their feedback and say, I think you may be missing this. I think you're discounting that too well, much. And the so. advisors too. I think that's one of the coolest things about the Motley Fool services is that we have these discussion boards where members are interacting and they're interacting with the advisors. Mm-hmm. So whether it's stock advisor, or inside value, or hidden gems, you can go in there. You can look at the, the stocks that the, that the newsletters recommend, which is great. Stock recommendations are great, but you also have this discussion board, this community that you can go to uh, to help through questions like that. Exactly. Question number two. Question number two. Hopefully this is an easier one. It's from Scott <laughs> Teal. He says, gentlemen, I love the podcast. I listen to it on the way to the NFL Network every day. David, amazing Super Bowl 48 and playoff picks. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you, Scott. <laughs> Jab me right off the top. Uh, <laughs> you two have brought... There you go. <laughs> you two have brought interest to... To me in the financial sector, and I appreciate the consistent inundation on companies. The one that piqued my interest as a result of your multiple discussions is PNC. 
In re- researching further, it appears to be a darling stock, like evidence darling. in its 3 to 4% correction while other stocks dropped 8% or more in the last correction. Is now And it is now back above $80. How do I determine when to get in? Also, what is your collective bull and bear perspective on this? Much appreciated. Here's to another thousand shows. You have strong opinions on PNC, so why don't you kick it off on this one? I do, so I'll, I guess I'll take the bull argument here. Um, first off with the price. I think the price you're paying for PNC today is very reasonable for the returns that they've historically generated and the returns that they can generate going forward, especially with their new strategy in place. So I really like the leadership at PNC. The old CEO moved on. He's now in the chairman role, so he's still involved in the company. Uh, now we have Bill Demchek as the CEO. He's been there for a while, came over from J.P. Morgan around 10 years ago. So I really like the leadership, and I like their position in the market. They have great consumer banking, so relationships like you and I, but they also have a really good corporate banking arm. I like the guy who, who's running that. How do you know clients. that I'm not a corporate banking client? Well, you may be. You're, you're a big timer. So I like the corporate bank as well. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. They're moving into private wealth management. A lot of opportunity there. And unlike a lot of banks, they are moving into a new market that they weren't previously in before. So you look at a Bank of America, they're in basically every market in the country. So there's not a lot of... I mean, they can, they can get customers, but it's not as easy as them just moving into a new market and grabbing share there. With the acquisition of RBC, moved into the southeast, been marketing a ton down there with all of these services. So I think they have an opportunity to grow the book of business, grow the fee businesses. So I think the outlook is very good here. What's the bear? Are you ready for my bear case here? Get bearish. All right. Well, for one thing, it's not... It's, you talk about the, the ability to grow, right, and, and the fact that PNC isn't all over the country. That is true. Uh, Bank of America, Wells Fargo don't have opportunity to move into a whole bunch of new states because they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. PNC does have that opportunity, but it's no guarantee. Moving into a new state, whether by acquisition or by de novo branch growth, it's difficult. And there are much different, this is a, a big and varied country, and there are much different operating environments for, for banks, uh, different types of customer bases, different real estate markets in every different state. So it's not a, a given. Uh, another issue with PNC is they are aggressively moving towards uh, lower branch counts, no free checking, and sort of this banking of the future model. And that's great. It sounds good. It sounds futuristic. I, you know, I can picture myself in a trench coat going into a, a PNC. Or my silver uh, onesie. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, trench coats in the future. But if that's not, I mean, what's tried and true is the branch model, having a branch there on the ground, having people there that people can interact with. Mm-hmm. If PNC misfires on this, that's uh, no bueno for the future growth of the bank. So... I think there are some concerns with the, the strategic decisions and the, and the opportunities, the potential opportunities that PNC has. However, I do own PNC, so I can't have too much of a bear case on it. I agree with a lot of what you said there. And in terms of when do you buy PNC, I think the valuation is really attractive right now. I think this is one of the banks that you can buy right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you say that's a risk, and I know you're just kind of being devil's advocate. Would you feel better if they were aggressively building out new branches? Aggressively, I don't know. But if they were selectively, I mean, there's, think about it. There's yeah. opportunity where there are banks that are paring down their branch networks. I mean, Bank of America is, is doing even more branch pairing. Mm-hmm. There's opportunity to go and pick up those branches, perhaps at a discount. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the opportunity to do slow but steady de novo branch growth for 
for a bank PNC size, that's a little bit more difficult to pull off. I mean, when you're a smaller bank, de novo growth is easier. For a mm-hmm. PNC, that, a bank that size, it's a little bit easier to take bite-sized chunks off of other companies as they spin them off, as with the RBC transaction. Okay. It was RBC, not RBS, right? RBC. Yep. Okay, Canada. Canada, not Scotland. Exactly. Okay. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, it's a risk. Okay. Um, Just wondering. All right, final question of the day. Let's do it. This comes from Ryan in Stony Creek, Ontario. Speaking of Canada, Ontario's in Canada. Yes. (laughs) Not great at geography. I work at a bank and had a client say to me something along the lines of China calling in their debt and ruining the North American economy. I was hoping you could give me a really good rebuttal as Google doesn't spell it out that well. Maybe with a financial institution spin on it because, again, this is WTMI versus market foolery. Thanks, guys. Avid listener. And again, that's Ryan in Ontario. Google, not giving you the rebuttal. Man, Google. Come on, Google. Where are you at? Come it's on. Algorithm is terrible. <sighs> Man. Uh, there's probably, there was probably a wiki how <laughs> up yeah. there, though. It's probably a wiki how, and what's the other one that always shows up? About.com. About.com. Mm-hmm. About China calling in their debt. Yeah. So, one of the things that I have a love-hate relationship with, love because I think it's funny, hate because it's generally wrong, is people's... um, uh, Misconceptions? People's misconceptions. People's thought that because they have a mental model of something around their personal finances, they they understand these big global macroeconomic concepts. And this, I, I think this China debt thing falls into that. So I think the way a lot of people think about this, and when I hear this question, this is, what, this is what I'm thinking that this person is thinking, is basically like, I go to you and I give you 20 bucks. And uh, I say, I'm going to borrow this, I'm going to lend you this 20 bucks, and at some point I'm going to come, come back and you'll have to pay me back, right? Mm-hmm. So someday I'll come down the line and say, David, I need that 20 bucks back. And may, maybe you don't have it in that point. I, I don't know, I put you in debtor's prison or something like okay. that. This is not how it works in terms of the U.S. debt and how much China has. Uh, the U.S. debt is not, it's not like China handed us a whole bucket of money and then someday they're going to say, oh, no, 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 we want that back. Give that back it's to us. It's not like a mafia shakedown. Yeah, right? We're going to need that money. <laughs> hey, hey, give us the, um, the, these are, are treasuries that, that the U.S. has, uh, has issued mm-hmm. and China has purchased them. And I mean, what could end up happening um, is that China decides it's going to start selling its treasury holdings uh, and, and diversifying its, uh, its, its government holdings into different countries' debt, yep. uh, different, currency, d- different currency debts. And that could be bad for us because that would uh, reduce the price for treasuries. I mean, if China starts dumping treasuries onto the open market, that'll push down the price. It'll push up the interest rate. Yep. That's bad for the U.S. That's bad for the government. We've got, I don't know if you've heard about this, but we've got kind of a lot of debt and if the interest rate to finance that debt suddenly went up, that would be bad. So China could do that. Here's the problem, though. China doesn't, hold, doesn't own as much debt, I think, as people think, and, and proportionally in particular. Americans still own most of yep. the U.S. debt. Own it's most, the biggest most of the foreign holder. Right, exactly. However, they own enough that if they started wholesale dumping treasuries onto the open market— they're basically shooting themselves in the foot mm-hmm. because there's no way they're going to unload that all at once. So if they start unloading it too fast and the price starts plummeting, the value of what they're holding is still going down. So 
I think one of the things that people may not think about when they think about the amount of U.S. debt that China holds is that that kind of put China, puts China on our side mm-hmm. uh, and, and kind of makes them a little bit more beholden to us because the value of all of that is dependent on the value of U.S. Treasuries and the confidence that the rest of the world has in U.S. Treasuries. So there's actually uh, th- a reason for China not to do any of that, mm-hmm. for, for them not to call the debt or more realistically, mm-hmm. dump treasuries. And if they would dump, that would impact what they export from their country, which we buy from them. So that would impact their situation mm-hmm. there. And we had Morgan on, Morgan Housel, a couple months I was just ago. Gonna, I was just going to say, next time we have Morgan on, he would get a this. kick out of this But one. He, he looked back, and China, over the last year or so, a couple years, has actually been a net seller of treasuries, and Japan has actually been a net buyer. So Japan is almost just as holds just as much treasury as China. But we never hear about, oh, what if Japan decides to declare war on us because they hold all of our treasuries? No. So China actually has been selling, and we haven't seen interest rates go crazy because of that. So I hope that that's a, I hope that that's a good answer for Ryan because uh, this is just... To me, this is one of those misconceptions that I think is um, maybe easy to come up with, but not exactly true. Cool. All right, that is the show for today. Uh, hopefully, if you are on the East Coast, uh, you are not snowed in right now, or at least you are comfortable and enjoying uh, the snow day. You can find us on uh, Twitter, at TMF Financials. You can email us, WTMI at fool.com. As always, I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.